Amen. Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you would, grab your Bibles and open to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, as we continue through our study in Paul's letter to this church in Ephesus. Um, thank you all for, uh, for braving the polar vortex this morning and making it to church. Uh, this, is, this, is what, this is like a Texas equivalent of a blizzard, so I'm glad you all made it, braved the cold weather, and are here. Um, we're thrilled that you're here. So if you're new with us, welcome. We preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we are currently doing that through the book of Ephesians. And we've got a lot to get through uh, this morning, uh, which always scares Josh when I say that. So in light of that, I'm going to jump right in. Ephesians 5, 1 through 15, I'm going to read. It'll be on the screen. Follow along with me if you have your Bible. Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality, all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you as is improper for the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible to the light, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead in Christ will shine on you. Now, growing up, or if you have little kids, one of the most common questions, at least it is around our house with adults and grown-ups that interact with our kids, or maybe you, and you meet other new kids outside of like, did you wash your hands? This is maybe a close second question that's always asked. What do you want to be when you grow up? Right? That's always the question. Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's funny, funny to see the kids just sort of grapple through that idea of like, oh, you know, sometimes one week it's a scientist, the next week it's a fireman, the next week it's the president, the next week, whatever it might be, right? Well, uh, a few years back, my, uh, my oldest son, Owen, was, they were doing a, a kindergarten graduation, which is like a thing now. They finish kindergarten, they throw a celebration, it's a graduation from kindergarten, and they put on this performance, and the kids kind of write down what, uh, what they want to be when they grow up, and the principal announces it before the entire school and all the parents and grandparents are there. And Owen said that he wants to grow up and be a preacher. And everyone's like, oh, that is so sweet. And the principal came up and she said, in 20 years, I've been, I've been a principal for 20 years. I've never heard a kid say they want to be a preacher when they grow up. That was, and, she, and I was like, well, I'm a preacher. And she goes, oh, okay, that makes sense. She's like, I just didn't know if he had this call to get up. And he's, he's kind of quiet. I didn't know he wanted to be a preacher. It's like, that's pretty unique. I was like, yeah, well, that's awesome. I was, but why did he say that? Why did Owen say that? What prompted Owen to say, I want to be a preacher? Has God placed a call in his life? Maybe. I don't know. I'm like praying that the Lord might call him to be a preacher one day or a pastor one day. Does he know what's really involved in being a pastor or a preacher? Well, to some degree, yeah, because why? 
because he sees dad. That's what dad does. Dad goes in his office, he reads books, he meets with people, he studies the Bible, he gets up on stage and preaches, right? He, we, he talks about it, he kind of lives and breathes it, he sees it. He does that because he sees what dad does, and he just is like, well, I just kind of, I think I just want to do what dad does. When I was a little kid, that, the same thing was asked of me. Well, what do you want to do? I want to be a business guy, like my dad, like my dad before me. That's what he does. That's what I know that he does. I remember when I was little, I would, uh, uh, my dad, early in the morning, he would always get up and shave and get ready for work. And I remember there was mornings I'd get in there. I was like, oh, I can't wait to be old enough to shave. It didn't stick very well, dad. Sorry about that. Um, but he would sometimes give me the razor and he would like, uh, but he'd pop the blank out of it. So just there would be nothing there. And he'd let me put the shaving cream on and I'd shave with him, right? That is like, because I, I want to be like dad. You have those moments. That's where these terms like father and like son come from, right? That's the expression. We, we, we see dad and often we want to be like him. However, sadly, I know for many of you that's not always been the case. Maybe you had an absent father. Maybe you didn't grow up with a dad or maybe worse yet, you had an abusive father. But the good news of Ephesians is that you have a good, loving, caring, perfect father. A perfect father. And if you remember how he started this book, at the very beginning, the third verse of Ephesians chapter 1 says this, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has now blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's our Father. That's our Father. And here in chapter 5, here in Ephesians chapter 5, he starts with that great statement in Ephesians 1. And here in chapter 5, verse 1, he tells us the application of that reality. He says that our reality now is that we are to become imitators of our Father. Just like when growing up, we maybe had those moments, I want to be like Dad. Paul is equating that. He says, be imitators now, therefore, of God, your good heavenly Father. Be imitators of Him. Grow up to be like him, essentially, right? That's the reality for us that the Apostle Paul is telling us as a church. He's telling this actual church, and he's telling us now in the Bible that we are to become imitators of our Father. Be like your dad. Be like your heavenly Father. Now, Paul, this is an interesting statement that he just makes. This is a profound statement. Other places in the New Testament, uh, Paul tells us to imitate him, as he imitates Christ. Or it says, follow me as I follow Jesus. Right? Paul says that, which is another very bold statement. It's like, follow me as I follow Jesus. That's discipleship. Right? Other places, he says for us to imitate other churches who are living by faith in Christ and are pressing into the realities of the gospel. He says, imitate those other congregations. Only right here in Ephesians chapter 5 are we told anywhere in the New Testament to imitate God. This is a pretty profound statement. Now, let's clarify a few things. We can't imitate God in everything, can we? That's probably should be obvious to us in a few examples, right? So we can't create the world out of nothing, right? So you're thinking like, oh, this is a high order. I imitate God. How, how do I do that? Does he want me to create something with my hands? Is it like a creative expression here? No, we can't, we can't imitate God in some things. We are not all powerful. We are not all places at all times. We don't know all things. We aren't all these huge, massive ideas of who God are. We can't imitate him in those things. But we're to imitate him as far as it is possible because we're image bearers of God. 
we bear the very image of God. So as image bears, Paul's telling us that we should reflect the likeness of God in certain areas. Now think about this. This is a profound statement. Many of us, we, we kind of, we, we're kind of used to going to church and we hear things like that and we just sort of like, okay, cool. I mean, Paul just said, be imitators of God. If we take this seriously, if we understand the nature and the character of God, what he has asked of us, how he has loved us, how he has poured himself out for us, what he is doing, what he is like, this is going to take an enormous adjustment on our part to imitate God, isn't it? This isn't a call to just have God sort of when you need him and pull him off the shelf and access him when you think it's convenient or just when things go wrong or when things go really right. It's, an, it's a pervasive call of all of life. This is going to take a massive, and this is a huge challenge for someone, namely the Apostle Paul, to say, hey, church, be more like God. This is going to take enormous change in our lives. And this is a hard text right here that we're in. I'll just be honest. Um, this is Paul kind of giving constant right-left jabs at us, kind of through it. Because this is really like the rubber meets the road right here. This is hard stuff. This is very practical. This is stuff that we deal with on an everyday basis where we falter and don't imitate God. Paul is going to course correct us here and say, remember who he's made you to be. Uh, this, these verses don't sell a lot of books in the Christian self-help section. Uh, these verses are not the very first ones that pastors uh, love to just pick up and preach out of because they're difficult. It's a high calling. Um, this is Paul's fatherly correction to a church and to you and I this morning. And so the main point is clear. He says, be imitators of God. And I love the simplicity of how he breaks this down. How do we do this? How is this possible? How do we actually imitate God? Well, he's going to break it down for us in a very clear way by using this theme that he's been using in weeks previous, if you've been with us, by using this idea of how we walk. How we walk, how we, meaning how we conduct our lives. And he's going to use three walks to define for us how we are to become imitators of God. In verse 2, he's going to say, walk in love. You want to imitate God? First and foremost, you've got to walk in love. And he's going to explain what that means. In verse 8, he's going to say, walk in the light. You want to be an imitator of God? Walk in the light. Conduct your life in the light. And then finally, in verse 15, he's going to conclude it, and he's going to say, walk in wisdom. So walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. So that's where we're going to be today. We're going to unpack those ideas, because that's how the Apostle Paul is going to define for us how you and I are to be imitators of this God who has saved us with a great salvation. Verse 1 and 2 in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We're directed to God himself as a model of love, right? Paul highlights the love of the Father and then he highlights the love of the Son. So we have God the Father and God the Son that he's given to us to say, this is how you walk in love. So verse 1, love like the Father, as beloved children, right? 
Now remember, how, how did we become beloved children? So if we're beloved children of the Father, we got to remember back to the very beginning of Ephesians of how Paul explained to us explicitly how you and I became beloved children of the Father. It's not because we made it or we got it and someone else didn't and we achieved something. He says, no, in love. Remember, he predestined us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to his purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed us in the beloved. God did it. God adopted us. He made us sons and daughters who were orphaned in our sin. We were outcast. And then he, he sent the Spirit to invade into our hearts. He gave us a family that we call the church. And now, as he's writing Ephesians, he's giving us family chores that we're to do, that we're to do as God's people. Right? And this should compel us to love. So how do we imitate God with regard to this type of love? Well, how did he love you? He loved you when you were undeserving. He loved you when you were an outcast. He loved you when you were making all the wrong decisions. He loved you uh, when you weren't even thinking about loving him in return. And yet he came and loved. When you were sinful. When you were even outside the family. And now, therefore, to be a people who love, we're to be like God and imitate this love by loving the broken and loving the vulnerable and loving those that don't really deserve it. Because that's the way that God loved us. That's the way God the Father loved us. That's the way he loved me. We didn't arrive. He loved us when we were in our worst states. So walk in love as God's children, in love like he loved you. Jesus says it like this, be merciful just as your father is merciful in Matthew 5. So how do we do this practically? And there's a million ways, right? But it's love and care for, the Bible speaks of loving and caring for orphans and their affliction. Uh, look after the stranger. Care for and ser serve the widow. Extend your hand to the poor. Help and love the marginalized. Those that can't love you back, that don't have the capacity to, because that's how we were outside of Christ. He didn't get anything in return from us when he extended his hand down toward us and invited us into his loving embrace. So Paul says to us as the church, love this way, church. Love this way. So who's God put in your life that you're to love like that? That you're to love like the Father has loved you like that? This is a commandment that God gives to us. How can you imitate God in this way? Even when someone's undeserving, and even when they can't love you back like you might hope they might. Secondly, love like the Son. Verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us. So love like the Father loved us. And now Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul moves to the cross right away. Paul gets to the cross. And he talks about love in that way. He states that Christ's forgiveness is the motive for us to love and forgive each other. And he goes to the cross to talk about love. Love others like Jesus. This sounds good, but we know we fail at this. Paul shows us something. Paul shows us that we don't just need Jesus as our example. 
We don't just need Jesus to say, oh, well, I look back to Jesus and he's my great example and now I just try to be more like him. It's not imitate like that, but no, Jesus came and loved you with a sacrificial love, died for you, gave you a new heart so that now you can love like that. He's replaced something in you that you're now able to live. He's not just our example. He is our substitute because of the cross, because of the good news of the gospel that we're able to love in this way. And so it's a savior who forgives and who is our substitute that empowers us to love the world like he has loved us. This does not um, earn our salvation, but when we love like this, it demonstrates our salvation. It shows the world. It shows those whom we're loving our salvation. It doesn't earn extra favor from God, but it's, it's a fruit of our changed heart in that we're able to love in this way. So we can't simply just be good humanitarians and then go to heaven. We can't just be good enough person and get there. We need a Savior who forgives and then a Savior who empowers us to love the world with that level of forgiveness and love. And in doing so, we demonstrate the love of Christ to those around us. Now, Paul says this, uh, he said this last week, I assume you know this, but what am I talking about here? A substitutionary love. Well, Jesus came, the Bible teaches us, the scripture teaches that Jesus came and he lived a perfect sinless life. He kept the law perfectly He died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And as a substitute for sinners like us, he rose in victory, conquering the grave. And by faith to those who receive him, Jesus saves and gives new everlasting life and hope in the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the love that propels us. This is what we hold out to the rest of the world. This is all we have. This is the gospel. This is how our hearts are transformed to love like this. And so once a person is indwelled with the Spirit of God, receives him by faith, now we're able to love sacrificially like Jesus has loved us. It comes from him. It's not just out of our own power and own working. This is a Christ-centered love. So how does Jesus love? Well, his example is this. Um... And this is a wonderful definition for talking about love. Uh, Paul says that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So that we can say now, after knowing this, after knowing what Jesus has done for you and I, if you're a believer in here, that love is giving yourself away for the good of another. That's loving like Jesus loved giving yourself away for the good of another, even the undeserving for the glory of God, that he would receive due credit, that God would. And this, in fact, this verse will echo the verse that we're going to be getting to in a couple weeks when we talk about marriage. Paul goes back to this very same idea when he expounds on, okay, husbands, you want to love your wife? You want to have a a marriage that is built on the foundation of God and the gospel? Husbands, he's going to say the same thing. Love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificially love her. Sacrificially love her. So love demands giving of something. 
It's, it's active. It's not just sentimental. Love's not just a feeling. Uh, it's not feeling sorry for someone. Oh, I just, gosh, I feel so bad for that person. Jeez, like, I feel just, it's not just that. It may start there, but it surely doesn't stop there. Love is not a feeling, right? You feeling sorry or you feeling bad for someone doesn't love them. You feeling sorry or you feeling bad for the poor doesn't love them or help them or do anything for them. You feeling sorry or bad for your kids who are struggling doesn't help them or do much for them. You feeling sentimental about your spouse uh, doesn't do much for them. That's a hallmark version of love. You feeling sorry for the orphan doesn't help them. Or for the lonely, or for the widow. The list goes on, right? Love is demonstrated, the scripture tells us. Paul, in fact, tells us in Romans that God demonstrated his love for us. So God himself demonstrates love for us. How did he do it? Not by feeling sorry for us, not by just feeling bad for us, but he acted on our behalf by sending his son for us and dying in our stead. It says in Romans, he gave himself up for us. That's the way that God demonstrated his love for us, an active love. So love, love is flesh and bone. It's in reality. It acts. It does something. We live in a culture that is just, the definition of love is just a bunch of warm and fuzzies, right? It's, it's sentimental. You can fall in and out of it. It just is wishy-washy. It comes and goes in waves depending on the day or the month or what you ate that afternoon. But that's not the way the Bible defines and describes love for us. It talks about it as this active thing, as this moving toward, as this pursuit. And so what are some of the actions the Bible describes? What are some of these things that uh, can define our love and that can put flesh and bone on what we tend to think of as warm and fuzzy? The Bible says when the rubber meets the road, love is forgiving others. It's giving of yourself to others. It's giving of your possessions to others when they're in need. It's spreading the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is to a lost and dying world that desperately need to know him. It's serving one another and not having to be served in return. It's being patient. It's loving and being there for people who even annoy you. It's repenting of racism and things contrary to the gospel. It's loving people that are even different than you, different people groups, the nations. It's aiding the poor and the sick when they're in need. That's loving like Jesus. That's Christ living in us. In light of the fact that Jesus has loved us and has given himself for us, now Paul says, go do the same. Live like that. That's gospel-centered love. That's Christ-centered love. And then what else we notice is that Christ's death, Paul tells us, was a fragrant offering 
was a fragrance to God. Now, this is, this is like an Old Testament analogy that Paul's tying together here. The Old Testament sacrifices, when, uh, when people would stumble into sin, they would go offer sacrifices because they knew that their sin separated from, their, from God, and so there needed to be bloodshed to atone for it. And so they would go to the altar, uh, they would burn up the sacrifice, and if it was pleasing to God, it would be a fragrant offering to the Lord. It would be this aroma a scent of grace, if you would. And this is what Paul is pointing back to, this idea of a fragrant aroma that would go up to the Lord. It was God's acceptance of, his, of this sacrifice as the worshiper came and presented it wholeheartedly and honestly to God. So here Paul is going to tie this together and said, Christ's offering, Christ's life, him coming, him dying on the cross was the ultimate, acceptable, fragrant offering to God. It was beautiful. He gave himself for us, and it was this offering to God. He gave himself for us, and then it says, but it was an offering to God. He gave himself freely and fully to you and I, but for the glory of God that God would be made much of. That's the pattern of love. That's unselfish love. Not he gave himself over to us so that we now might earn our way back to his good graces in return. No, he gave himself fully and freely to us for the glory of God. And that was the fragrant offering to God. That God would receive glory from his life, not just the praise of men. Though he deserves it, though we worship him, though he is good to us, though we love singing to him, his sacrifice ultimately shines a glorious light on the goodness of God our Father that we might be called sons and daughters. That's good news. That's a pattern of love for us. Love unselfishly like that in your love. Pour yourself out for the good of others, not so that they would puff you up and pat you on the back, but that God might receive the glory, that it would be a fragrant aroma to God himself. Do we love like that? That's the pattern of love that Paul talks about. It gives itself away for the glory of God. Secondly, he says, walk in the light. So first we walk in love, love like the Father, love like the Son, and now he says, walk in the light. Now Paul describes this theme of light and darkness, and he contrasts, contrasts darkness with the fruit of life. And down in verse 8, he says something remarkable that I want to draw our attention to. He says, at one time, you were darkness. That's an interesting way of putting it. He does not say, you were in darkness, though that's true. He says, at one time, you were darkness. And now he says, but now you are light in the Lord. At one time, believers... At one time, you were darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. Here's what he's talking about. He's not just talking about situations. He's not talking about circumstance. He's saying your identity has totally changed now. Because now you're light. You were once darkness. Now you're light. So now Paul says, so now walk as children of light. This is who you are. It's not just a list. It's not just uh, circumstantial. This is, he's, he's getting to our hearts. Now you are light. 
Not just you're in the light in one moment and you're in. He says, no, you were once darkness, now you're light. So how do we walk in the light? Paul gives us some ideas of how we walk in the light and not in the darkness. And he mentions several sins here to describe the dark life. And here's where it gets difficult. So number one, he says, here's, here's how he describes a life of darkness. One, sexual immorality. Two, impurity. Three, covetousness or greed. Four, filthy or foolish talk or crude joking. He says, these sins grow out of a heart that has replaced God with other things that we want to chase, that thing we think will satisfy. Other false gods that we chase and want to worship. So Paul is ultimately telling us that our sin problem is a worship problem. Right? The problem of pornography is a worship problem. The problem of greed and wanting and desiring more and more and more and never having enough is a worship problem. The problem of uh, the things that come out of our mouth that don't honor and reflect who he is and his character is not just a problem based on our tongue, but it's a worship problem. He says our life always follows our heart is what he's getting at here. And so he says if you walk in the light, you keep in worshiping him and not in these things. He, He goes on and he says these things should not even be named among you. Church, you're children of the light. The NIV translated, there should not even be a hint of it. No one should even be able to whisper of this of you. Having been in ministry for many years now, we, I have the tendency, we like to redefine things. We like to say, well, let's see how far I can get to the line. And is that okay to just be right here? I'm not here. I didn't cross over the edge. But can I just tiptoe right to the very edge just to get a glimpse and just see what it's like? Can I just creep over here and I won't fall fall down in there. I'm strong. What is it like to come over here? And we like to creep to the very line. Paul is saying, not even a hint. It shouldn't have been even named among you. I did youth ministry for... Four years um, before getting into church planting many years ago. And boy, this, I, liked, I would like to think that we uh, outgrow this as teenagers. They're, I think teenagers are just more honest in uh, verbalizing it. They like to say, um, well, is this too far? We as adults just redefine it and come up with new terms and then just don't tell anyone. But teenagers are like, well, I know it says this, but it doesn't say this. So can I do this? Paul says, not even a hint. Why, why, why put your toes up to that line? It's a crumbly, slippery slope. Don't even let it be named among you. Verse 3, sexual immorality and impurity. Um, Paul puts this at the top of the list, and he does this in many other places. Um, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, and this is this word, the sexual immorality. Uh, the word here is pornei, and it's this broad word that covers all sexual sin that's described and defined in the Bible. And it's where we get our word um, pornography. And uh, and so it's this it's this 
broad context of these types of sins. Um, And the Bible in other places condemns particular types of these, but this is in the broad context. Paul uses this here. And he says, um, people we, we often try to work our way around this, but Paul says not even a hint. Don't try to find a loophole. Because when we try to find a loophole, we stumble and fall face first into it, right? Well, what about this website? It's not that bad. It's just, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not vulgar, not even a hint. Paul says, you were darkness, and now you're light. And he's saying, become what you are. Walk in who you've been made to be. But we're clever as people. Um... And we like to rename things. We like to redefine things. Uh, We say things like this in our culture, which is comical. We say, this is for mature audiences only. This content is for mature audiences only. As if looking at what you're looking at is the definition of maturity. It sounds nice, right? It's, oh, I'm mature enough to handle, no. That is the opposite of maturity, the Bible is describing. We say, we call, we call establishments uh, that propagate this and have um, men and women that are in bondage to this sin, we call them gentlemen's clubs, as if there's a group of people playing polo and talking about poetry and how to end world hunger. Oh, those are for the gentlemen. Paul uh, in this chapter will say, a gentleman is someone who is at home loving his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We get very clever with it. And that's what sin does. It distorts our view of reality. It distorts our view of who we are. It distorts our view of who who others are. So what do we do with this sin? We um, We don't try to manage it or rename it or redefine it or minimize it. Uh, Colossians and the scripture says we kill it. Uh, there's, there's, two, there's two things in the Bible. One of them is talked about a lot. It's this idea of vivification. It's the life of the spirit, the things that make us alive to God. That's to be vivified. Those are the things we like to preach about. The grace, holiness, walking in the light, uh, gr- forgiveness, mercy. Those are the things that just bring us life. But the Bible also speaks of when sin comes in, we put it to death. That's called mortification. We take it and we nail it to the cross because we, Christ has given us the power by the Spirit to do that. So we, we kill sin in our lives by the power of God in our lives. We are made alive to the good things, but we also need to put to death the things of the flesh and sin. Vivification and mortification. Today's churches don't like to talk about mortification. Put to death the sins of the flesh. We like to talk about these other ones because they're, they're fun to talk about. But they go hand in hand. Colossians says you need to kill the sin in your lives. Or, depending on it, you need to just flee from it. Run from it. Don't stand to fight against it. Just put your eyes and your mind and your heart away from it and run the other way. If sexual sin has got getting a foothold in your life, get away from it, the scriptures will tell us. Or abstain from it. Instead, glorify God with your body, 1 Corinthians says. Church, this is, uh, 
this is a, this is, I wish I could say that, you know, this written 2,000 years ago, the list has changed. Unfortunately, it has not. This could be written t- today. This is for us. Now, the Bible, don't hear me say this, the Bible is not anti-intimacy. There's some little ears in here, so I'm, I'm trying to edit as I go so as to not create some difficult conversations maybe that you weren't wanting to. It's pro-intimacy within the context of marriage. It is within the context of marriage, the covenant of marriage. But this sin that Paul mentions first and foremost, it's destroying our culture, it's destroying marriages, it's destroying our kids, and it's more accessible than it ever, ever has been in the history of the world right now. Right now. It's on the phones of many, many, many elementary and middle school boys in the cafeteria before they go to class. It's on the phones of, it's on TV screens of places of work where many of, maybe some of you might work. It's in the dark corners that we don't talk about. Temptation lies everywhere. Now, we want to be a place of healing for this. We want to be a place where uh, you can come be healed from this. But it, there can't be healing where you just don't talk about it. And there's no place of repentance. So repentance involves acknowledging the sin and that we need to change by the power of Christ. It's taking the things of darkness and bringing them into the light and letting the goodness and hope of the gospel bring restoration, peace, and healing where only he can. Third, greed, covetedness. I can't actually say that word, so I know I'm probably mispronouncing it, but I tried like 50 times. It just comes out covetedness. I know there's supposed to be a CH, I think, sound in there, but I I can't get there. So I'm going to say greed. It's this insatiable desire to have more and more and more and more, right? Greed is about the heart. It's about desiring something and stuff more than we desire God. And Jesus tells us in the Gospels, in Luke 12, he says this about this sin, the sin of greed, the sin of wanting more, the sin of desiring what others have because you don't. He says, be on guard about this. He says, watch out for this. That's a, this is kind of a funny way of putting it. Why does Jesus say, uh, be on guard. He says, don't become like a rich fool. Be on guard against the sin of greed. Watch out that you might be greedy. Why does he say this? Because no one ever thinks they're greedy. No one. I've been in ministry for 15 years. I've never had anyone email me or call me and say, Pastor, I need to meet with you. I think I am struggling with the sin of greed. I need to talk to you. We need to talk about this. We need to walk through some... No one. None of us think we struggle with this. Jesus says, watch out. This one is sneaky. This one creeps in, and you don't even know it's there. And it sticks with you, and, uh, and you just don't think it's you. So Jesus says, be on guard for this one, because it creeps in. Paul says, godliness with contentment, on the flip side, is great gain. Learn the graces of contentment and generosity because that's how Jesus has loved us. That's how we walk in the light. Not through greed, but through generosity and contentment. Instead of a lust for more and more and more and acquiring more and more and more, ultimately, Paul's saying, the God of money will not satisfy you. It's empty. 
Find your satisfaction in God alone. Be content and be generous. Next, corrupt speech. Let's kind of walk through some of these. It's, he lists filthiness or obscenities, meaning language that is shameful or disgraceful, foolish talk, refers to speech that's, uh, that a fool is associated with sin. It's just, just tipping into foolish talk, sinful talk. Crude joking. Now, joking usually uh, can have a positive connotation. It can be, it can be this idea of wit. You're quick-witted. God's giving this quick wit about you. But here, when sin corrupts it, it tips over into crude joking. You use your quick wit to get a quick laugh for crude sake to just gain acceptance or approval of other people rather than honor God with your mouth. So there's nothing wrong with humor and laughter and having a great time, but it can be abused. Sin distorts things that are good and corrupts them. That's what sin does. So Paul says, be careful how you speak. Be careful how you view money. Be careful, church, what you look at, what occupies your mind. It says you're children of light. Become what you are. That's what Paul's urging. can't tell you how many times uh, as a pastor, you're at a football game, you're at a block party, you get invited someplace, they don't know, they don't know you very much, and you kind of show up into this group setting and... Uh, Inevitably, you're, there's, always a, there's always a few that they're just ripping off this or that, and they're talking about this, that, and the other, and maybe they're kicking back a few too many, and then it inevitably comes around. This is the story of my life, um, the last few years especially, and it's like, hey, so what do you do, and what do you do? And like, it finally gets to me, hey, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. <gasps> oh, dude, don't think bad. I'm so sorry. And he just like replays all that was just done and said, like, man, I promise I'm not really like this all the time. I'm like... Dude, I'm so sorry. Don't think bad of me. You're just like, I'm the least of your concerns here, buddy, right? It's like, no, I don't say that. Right? But Paul's like, be who you are. Like, walk in the light. Be children of the light. Let your tongue follow the grace that God has given to you. Reflect the grace of God in your life and thank him. And notice what he says. So he says, don't let any of this crude talk, any of this vulgarity, any of this, jo- this crude joking. But he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't just flip a morality switch. He doesn't say, but instead, talk cleanly. That's not what he says. He says, but instead, have a heart of thanksgiving. He gets to the heart. He says, don't just change uh, your words for morality's sake. Don't just change your words so that you fit in and that people might pat you on the back as a good Christian. He says, no, your heart should reflect something different. You should be a worshiper. And may, the, may worship bubble up, thanksgiving bubble up for God out of your mouth. It's a heart issue. Paul's bringing it back to the heart. As you reflect on his grace, thank him. Then he gives us a warning in verses 5 and 6. These are scary. He offers a warning, and Paul says that those who persist in this lifestyle, those who persist will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Similar uh, text in this, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5. The unrepentant will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, do Christians fall into these sins? Yes, we do. Of course. But I believe what Paul is getting at here, and this is in consistency with the rest of the New Testament, is that true Christians will not persist in them without repentance. So those whom Christ has saved and bought and redeemed and sealed, 
for eternity. When these sins creep in, the Holy Spirit convicts us of these sins, and we begin to turn. Though it may take time, we begin to turn and feel conviction and repentance. But for persistence in these, one pastor says, for persistence and no repentance and sensuality is a graceless state. Kent Hughes said that, great pastor and author. Paul told, says it this way in, in, the, in Corinthians. He says, such were some of you. But he says, but you were washed and sanctified and justified. So do not persist any longer in this manner of life. This warning shows how foolish worldly pursuits in the grand scheme do not profit. What good is that momentary thrill in comparison with the eternal enjoyment of the kingdom of God. Paul strengthens this by saying, uh, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He's meaning those who persist in unrepentant sin. He says, you can't just make a mockery of the name of Jesus and strut into the kingdom of heaven. He says, and don't be deceived by the words of others, but rather listen to God's word. Cling to his words. His words are true. His way is true. He is good, right, and true. And then he goes on and he says, um, do not become partakers with them in the darkness because you are now light. So Paul says that we should display lives, lives of holiness since we are now light. How? By displaying light to those even in darkness. So we, are, we, we as believers, we're not just to isolate ourselves. We're supposed to live lives of light on mission for the glory of God. So we should love and befriend others that are not in our faith, that are maybe walking far away from God, but we are not to participate in the deeds of darkness, he's saying. Live a life that shows and reflects the glory of God. Display what is good, right, and true. And then secondly, I'm running out of time. He says, expose the darkness. So as we are in this world that we find ourselves in, don't just ignore the darkness that's existing around you. Don't just, don't just say, well, I'm just going to be a presence of light and just sort of be here. He says, no, on the contrary, we should see corruption and sin and disobedience and things that are not honoring to God and expose them to the light of God so that the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus would invade these dark places and he might save some among the darkness like we were saved among the darkness. So he's saying, live on mission. Light exposes and transforms. It exposes and it transforms. And then he says this in verse 14. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So this could have possibly two meanings here. So he's saying maybe some of you are still in the darkness. And he says, Wake up to the light of Christ, the reality of Christ in your life. And when you wake up to him and embrace the light, his light will shine on you. Or he could be saying to those who are believers, this church in Ephesus is saying, wake up. Don't live like this in the darkness. Wake up. He's sounding the alarm for us. Stop consuming your time, filling your time with sin, and, and start loving Christ and God for his glory that the church might advance and the goodness of the gospel would prevail. And notice the blessing when we do that. It says Christ's light will shine on you. 
So we imitate God in love and in light. And finally, a few words about this in wisdom. He says, walk carefully. Make the best use of your time. Do not walk as a fool, but walk carefully. Don't just put one foot in front of the next and just hope things go well. Walk in wisdom. Walk on purpose. Live on purpose for the glory of God. Understand what he has called you to, what he's called you for, and live in such a manner that would shine a light on Jesus in the glory of God. Paul says, don't walk as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of your time. That's a good word for us. It's a good word for me. Every time I talk to any one of you, I say, how are you doing? I am so busy. How are you? And I say, I'm so busy. Our lives are just filled. Constantly, Paul says, church, evaluate your life. Look at where you're spending your time. Look at when you're spending your resources and energy. Make the most of your time. Be wise. Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. Make the most of your time for the glory of God. Be imitators of God in this way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, these are hard truths. Um, These are, gosh, for some of us, for me sometimes even, Lord, these are almost too practical. Um, So, Lord, help us to live in light of the gospel. Help us to love uh, you, God, first and foremost. Help us to love one another. The sacrificial love, help us to pour that love out onto others. Help us to walk in the light as you were in the light. And help us to make the most of our days and walk in wisdom that others might come to know you. That's, That's why you've put us here. Help us to live on purpose. Lord, give us grace where we failed. We need it. But don't let us stay in that state. Wake us up, O sleeper, that the light of Christ may shine in us.